0: Thanks to all of you at home for joining us this hour. As the January 6th committee rushed to finish its work and close up shop over the holidays, we were practically inundated with releases of material. There was the committee's final report, which clocked in at over 800 pages, then there were just thousands of pages of deposition transcripts, there were court documents and exhibits from the committee's hearings, and dozens of videos. It's hard to believe that there was anything the committee did not release. And yet today we learned there was something. Today, The Washington Post published this draft memo prepared by a team of committee staffers focused on social media and extremism. They were known as Team Purple. The team apparently hoped that their 100-plus page memo would be adapted into a chapter in the investigation's final report. But the committee decided to leave most of it on the cutting room floor. Among Team Purple's most damning findings was that in the run-up to January 6th, Social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook bent over backwards. They bent their own rules to allow Donald Trump and others, people who were Stop the Steal proponents, to continue spreading election disinformation because the tech giants feared blowback from conservatives. Executives failed to heed warnings from their own employees about the ways that election denialism was morphing into violent rhetoric, which was likely to explode into real-life violence on January 6th. Rolling Stone reports that a senior safety specialist at Twitter who had tried and failed in the run-up to January 6th to get her bosses to clamp down on posts that could incite violence, that she wrote this to a colleague the day before the attack on the Capitol. "Quote, When people are shooting each other in the streets tomorrow, I'm going to try and rest in the knowledge that we tried. Because while the January 6th attack may have seemed to most Americans to come out of nowhere, The people at tech companies whose job it was to be on the lookout for threats, they saw it coming a mile away. They watched as election disinformation from Donald Trump and his allies became widespread widespread election denialism among his supporters, which turned to extreme rhetoric about things like taking our country back, which turned to coded and not-so-coded calls for violence. And then we got January 6th. But the Team Purple investigators for the January 6th committee made clear that the Capitol attack was not the end of this cycle. This is from their draft memo. Quote, recent events demonstrate that nothing about America's stormy political climate or the role of social media within it has fundamentally changed since January 6th. Following the lawful FBI search of President Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago, both mainstream platforms and the sites where extremists plotted to assault the Capitol, we're again a boil with violent speech. Just days later, an armed man threatened the FBI building in Cincinnati, Ohio, reporting soon confirmed that he was present at the Capitol riot. Until the incentives for violent, extreme, and even apocalyptic rhetoric are diminished, the threat of political violence will persist. And sure enough, now we appear to be seeing it again, this time in New Mexico. Back in August, the Santa Fe New Mexican flagged the notable history of a candidate for a state house seat in Albuquerque. The Republican nominee for the seat, Solomon Pena, had been convicted of 19 felonies and spent almost seven years in prison for being the mastermind of a smash and grab burglary ring. Naturally, after getting out of prison, Solomon Pena figured the next move that made sense for him was to run for political office as a super MAGA pro-Trump Republican. After Pena lost his race and lost badly, getting only 26% of the vote, he announced that just like Donald Trump, he was not conceding his race. He was researching his options. What he came up with, apparently, was a series of visits to the homes of Democratic elected officials in New Mexico, where he disputed his election loss with them. One Democratic county commissioner tells NBC News that Peña came to her house right after the November election. Quote, he was at my door and he was aggressive. He was an election denier. Another county commissioner had a similar experience with Peña. Quote, this guy came to my home. I was very concerned about it and was very unsettling. He was angry about losing the election. He felt the election was unfair and untrue. Both of those commissioners called the police, but they did not give the visits much more thought. That is until the shooting started. Solomon Pena has of course now been arrested on charges that he orchestrated a spree of shootings, targeting the homes of those two county commissioners, a state senator, and the new state house speaker, all Democrats. No one was hurt in the shootings, but that was apparently not for lack of trying. In the criminal complaint against Pena, police provide the account of a confidential witness who participated in some of the shootings and is cooperating with authorities. This witness told the police that Peña didn't like that the men he'd hired to shoot the Democratic officials' homes, that they were firing at the houses so late at night and they were aiming above the windows. Peña wanted them to aim lower and commit the shootings earlier in the evening to have a better chance of hitting people inside. Peña personally participated in the fourth and final shooting to ensure that it was carried out that way. It was during that shooting that the county commissioner's sleeping 10-year-old daughter was covered in sheetrock dust, dislodged by bullets passing through her bedroom. Today, the New Mexico legislature opened its new session with the new House speaker, whose home was riddled with bullets last month. This may be the first time that election denialism has escalated to violence in the state of New Mexico. But like so many other places all over the United States, election denialism has caused plenty of other problems in the state over the last couple of years. Republican commissioners in one New Mexico county spent weeks refusing to certify the results of an election last year over fake election fraud claims. New Mexico's Secretary of State finally went to court and forced them to certify. The Secretary of State herself had to go into hiding for several weeks the previous year because of online threats. And as New Mexico's top elections official, she has a pivotal role as her state heads towards 2024. And that's all because election denialism and its violent repercussions do not seem to be going anywhere. Joining us now is New Mexico Secretary of State, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. Madam Secretary, thanks so much for being with us tonight. I just want to first get your reaction to um, the George Pena news, uh, Solomon Pena news, and just to understand what it's been like for Democratic lawmakers in the state of New Mexico and how you're feeling right now tonight.
1: Well, thank you, Alex, for having me. I'm really grateful to be here to talk about this topic. And I will tell you tonight, I am feeling, and I know my colleagues, especially My colleagues who experienced actual bullets through their houses are feeling extremely relieved at the quick and decisive action of our local law enforcement officials, the Albuquerque Police Department, state police here in New Mexico. But for me, as somebody who has been on the front lines of dealing with threats and uh, now we're seeing actual acts of violence against elected officials here in the state, particularly as a result of election denialism and the lies and the myths and disinformation that have really pervaded a certain sect of our population over the last couple of years, I am deeply concerned because really we can see a through line now from the rhetoric Uh, that was leading up to the 2020 election all the way through December, uh, late in the year of 2022. And we're not just talking about violence now, we're seeing it actually happen.
0: You know, I think a lot of people think because there wasn't a January 6th style insurrection following the midterm elections, that somehow we've gotten to a better place. But I wonder what the view on that is from the state level. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the threat to democracy as it plays out in the state of New Mexico?
1: Sure well I'll tell you my colleagues and I in the election world and and really this is not just democrats uh it, it is people of both parties independents who work in elections for a living we were we were all saying you know wow this this election it's been a lot calmer uh, a lot less chaotic a lot less stressful and and threatening than the 2020 election was but we all sort of uh, are waiting for the other shoe to drop so to speak we we know that the per- pervasive sentiments that have been uh, created by the rhetoric of the big lie have not gone away. And we know that there are still a lot of people out there uh, who genuinely believe that the election was stolen and who also believe that the only way to deal with political conflict is to address it through violence. And this, this just reiterates what I have said and what my colleagues have said over and over again since 2020. The rhetoric has got to stop because it's it's not just a political tactic anymore. It is creating actual violence in our communities. It is affecting human beings like me and my family, my colleagues, my friends, and their families in their daily lives. It's threatening their safety. I mean, I guess,
0: what do you do short of making the case that this isn't the answer? We're human beings. Don't put my 10-year-old daughter's life in danger because you think the election was rigged. I mean, we began this segment talking about the findings of the Team Purple on the January 6th committee, and they detail with great specificity the radicalizing force of social media. How do you combat that as a state-level elections official? I mean, what recourse do you have? What resources do you have?
1: Well, first and foremost, we have to push back on the lies, And as you know, we have been doing that. We have been doing it very strongly and forcefully over the last couple of years. But the next step is to take legislative action. To ensure accountability and make sure that justice is being served for those who are not only, uh, just contemplating, but obviously for those who are carrying out these actions in real life. The work of the January 6th committee, I think was a great example of that. Uh, and, and the prosecutions and the successful convictions that we have seen in federal court, uh, particularly one individual in my state who was a public office holder who was then removed from office for having participated in the insurrection. It can't just happen at the national level, at the state level, when we see this type of violent behavior as we've seen here in my state. Again, I'm grateful to our local law enforcement, but the next step is to hold these individuals who are responsible, accountable, and to prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. And working with the legislature in my state and across the country, other states, we need to take proactive action legislatively to make very clear that it is a very serious crime to just even to threaten the lives and well-beings of elected officials across the country. I
0: mean, the thing, the other thing I worry about is beyond the, the very urgent safety issue, it's, it has a, it must have a chilling effect in terms of who volunteers to want to be part of this system, to be an elections official, to be a secretary of state. I mean, how do you grapple with this? Why do you still do a job that has forced you into hiding? I mean, obviously, it's very important for the functioning of democracy, but you're a person too. And I'm sure You have to worry about the safety of your own safety and that of your loved ones. How do you make that choice?
1: It's such a good question, Alex. And, you know, I ran for a second full term of office here in New Mexico last year, fully knowing, you know, the potential threats that I was going to subject myself to. And I had to think about it very hard. Uh, You know, I had to think about, you know, this isn't a job that I do for my own mental health and well-being, right? And I do acknowledge that there are potentially very serious threats to my life and to my family's life. But, that's the reality of justice and, and the right to vote in democracy in this country. I am not part of a cohort that is facing this for the first time. So many people in our nation's history have had to face threats to their lives and quite frankly have lost their lives for the fight for democracy in this country. So I am not any different. I am just willing to do the work and I'm willing to fight and to speak out and to do everything I can do to protect myself in light of the threats. And that is exactly what we need, again, on both sides of the aisle and independence and everybody who we need to Come together to run our nation's democracy, to make sure that it's healthy and that it thrives, is that willingness to say, yes, we acknowledge there is risk, but so many people have come before us to do the same.
0: Well, and we're all so deeply grateful for everything you're doing to keep the, the democracy of the United States on track. And I'm sorry that you have to make the decisions and the calculations that you do. New Mexico Secretary of State, Maggie Toulouse Oliver, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you. So that was part one of a bigger conversation about the state of MAGA Republicanism today and its relationship to election denialism and grifting and violence outside the halls of power. Part two is about election deniers and grifters in Congress. Just as conspiracy-mongering Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene today lands a plum assignment on the Homeland Security Committee. But what committees did serial fabricator George Santos get? All those details are next. And coming up later, new reporting that the Justice Department considered but ultimately decided against having FBI agents monitor President Biden's advisors as they conducted their search for classified documents at his Delaware home. How does it all factor in to the calculations of Merrick Garland? I will be joined on set by a former Justice Department prosecutor who just wrote a lengthy profile of the attorney general. All of that is just ahead.
1: Alpha one-niner. Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on.
2: TVs streaming. Game console Consoling. Smart thermostat. Set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here.
0: Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once.
1: All systems go. You are clear for
0: takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual
3: speeds vary and are not guaranteed.
2: Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows.
1: 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country
2: previews of our podcasts and documentaries plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves all sent directly to your inbox each morning get the best of msnbc all in one place sign up for msnbc daily at msnbc.com
0: It seems like every day we learn startling new details about newly elected Republican Congressman and serial liar George Santos. We don't have the entire hour for this segment, but you will remember that Santos lied about where he went to high school and college, about being a star volleyball player, about being Jewish, about his work history, and then, of course, there are his really questionable financials. Santos lent his campaign a whopping $700,000, and questions are swirling around potential serious campaign finance violations. As far as all that is concerned, the latest revelation comes from The Washington Post which reports, quote, new details link George Santos to cousin of sanctioned Russian oligarch. That's a real headline. The Post reports that the Russian businessman reportedly put, quote, hundreds of thousands of dollars into Santos's one-time employer, Harbor City, which was accused by regulators of running a Ponzi scheme. And yet today, George Santos who, by the way, voted 15 times to elect Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker, today George Santos was rewarded with a seat on both the Small Business Committee and the Science, Space, and Technology Committee. Hmm. Kevin McCarthy, who is barely a week and a half into his tenure as Speaker, made multiple concessions to get the Speaker's gavel, many we still do not know about. And today, in doling out committee assignments, three congressmen who literally led the charge against Kevin McCarthy, Matt Gates, Andy Biggs, and Chip Roy, they have all gained seats on the very powerful Judiciary Committee. Another McCarthy holdout, Congressman Scott Perry, he secured a seat on the Foreign Affairs Committee. McCarthy rewarded three of the most extreme Republicans in his caucus powerful committee seats. Two of those people were previously kicked off committees in the last Congress. Extremist and conspiracy theorist Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has liked social media posts calling for the execution of Democratic leaders and who was, if you remember, stripped of her committee assignments due to her dangerous rhetoric. Today, Marjorie Taylor Greene got not one but two seats on two of the most powerful committees in Congress, the Homeland Security Committee and the Oversight Committee. And Republican Congressman Paul Gosar, the conspiracy theorist who switched his vote at the 11th hour to Kevin McCarthy, the one who posted an anime video online showing him killing Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the one that got him stripped of his committee assignments back in the day. Paul Gosar also got a coveted seat on the powerful Oversight Committee. And then there is far-right Republican and QAnon supporter Congressman Lauren Boebert, Whose pivotal last minute vote switch allowed Kevin McCarthy to secure the speaker's gavel, who referred to Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar, a Muslim, as a member of the, quote, jihad squad. Lauren Boebert also got a seat on the oversight committee, which is the GOP, which, with which the GOP is planning to use, with which the GOP is planning to go after the Biden administration with numerous politically motivated investigations. Kevin McCarthy made a number of concessions to secure the votes to become speaker. We do not know all of them. What seems clear is that hardliners in his party have been appeased. And that could be catastrophic for both Americans and democracy. Joining us now is NBC's senior political reporter, Sahil Kapoor. Sahil, it's good to see you. Thanks for being here. A lot of choices were made on Capitol Hill today. What's been the reaction of Republicans who are not in the extreme, the most extreme wing of the Republican Party, to the the selection of Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Scott Perry for these plum committee assignments.
3: There certainly were a lot of choices made and a lot of very important choices made, Alex. Uh, of the 20 holdouts who dealt Kevin McCarthy 14 uh, humiliating defeats on the floor of the House of Representatives before ultimately electing him speaker, all of them have gotten committee assignments that would range from good to great. There are several of them who are freshmen, first-term members who have gotten committee assignments on the Homeland Security Committee, uh, Financial Services Committee, and the Appropriations Committee. I texted that to one eight to a House Republican member to what I would call a mainstream Republican, and the reaction I got back was a screaming face emoji. Throughout this process of you know getting uh, Kevin McCarthy elected speaker, there was a lot of anger from uh, more moderate and mainstream Republicans at the fact that 10 percent of the most right-wing Republicans were, in their view, holding the other 90 percent hostage. And there was always this insistence that there were no explicit committees promised to these members. It was never like, I need you to put me on this exact committee or I'm not going to vote for you. But we do know, because, you know, the members who were in the room negotiating this told me and other reporters that one of the things they demanded of Kevin McCarthy was what they called conservative representation on committees. What they meant by that was membership of the of the far-right Freedom Caucus on these Plum Committee assignments. It appears they got that, Alex.
0: I, I mean, riddle me this, Sahil. Kevin McCarthy agreed to a one-vote threshold to oust him as speaker. So, the far right seems to be winning this hand, but does not a certain amount of political capital lie with the non-MAGA-ish wing of the party? I mean, do this enough with enough you know, conspiracy theorists, fear-mongering, anti-vax Republicans, And the more—and I'll put it in quotes—mainstream wing of the party could revolt. I mean, is there any talk of McCarthy really practically losing support this early in the game?
3: Not at this moment, Alex, and this is going to be one of the most important gut-check questions for the moderate wing of the Republican Party. Are they willing to respond in kind and say, Speaker McCarthy, if you give these people too much of what they want, if you side with, you know, 10 percent of the, the most hard-right members, then you're going to have a problem on the moderate mainstream wing? We've seen over the last decade or so, the last 12 years, that I've covered the House Republican Caucus, uh, the conservative members, the most conservative members, they flex power. You know, they're willing to tolerate a high level of chaos on the floor of the chamber uh, to get what they want. The moderate members don't have the same willingness to, you know, flex their muscle to use the parliamentary equivalent of brute force that we're seeing from these ultra-conservatives. That's going to be a big problem when it comes to governing, I think, when it comes to, you know, funding the government, when it comes to lifting the debt ceiling, the non-optional pieces of legislation, because a lot of what these members are going to do on these committees is, you know, write legislation that can never pass the Senate, that can never get signed into law by President Biden, setting aside, of course, the oversight functions, which are also very important. But there are some uh, important matters of governing, you know, which have uh, very, very serious consequences.
0: (laughs) Okay, okay, moderate wing. (laughs) Use your power wisely, I guess. NBC's senior political reporter Sahil Kapoor, it's always great to see you, Sahil. Thanks for your time. Joining us now is Mark Leibovitch, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Mark, it is great to see you. Perhaps you, as a wise man of Washington, can tell me— what Sahil just said, you know, the moderate wing of the GOP is not uh, content or perhaps bold enough to use the power that they have to keep the hardline conservative, you know, extremists in line. And my question to you, as someone who studied the the sort of Republican uh, class of politicians in Washington, why is that? Why? Kevin McCarthy holds the speaker's scaffold by one vote, Why, like, why? One, one, one naysayer could oust him as speaker. Why not use your power?
4: right or you know they have a majority of what four votes i mean just any number and there's there's a fairly high number of mainstream moderate whatever you want to call them republicans who are who ran and won in districts that biden ran and won in in 2020 so they're clearly vulnerable to you know some kind of re-election battle and they are not banding together yet i was a little bit surprised after basically mccarthy it looked like he was rewarding all kinds of bad behavior or preemptive bad behavior during just just the chaos of a week and a half ago, which in turn he was because all the people who were sort of holding his, you know, who were sort of holding him over the deck of the Capitol were, you know, all awarded big committee assignments this week, and and ultimately these these moderates or whatever you want to call them, none of them voted against the rules package a few days later. So they have not in any way, shape, or form shown any willingness to defy the right, which they seem frankly scared of. So to me, that's a dynamic that will I think be defining to what the Republicans look like. Like over the next several months.
0: Well, and yet, you know, the Republican, you know, party elders are commissioning various forms of autopsies to figure out what went wrong in 2022, and it does not take a rocket scientist to understand that the lesson from these midterms, where Republicans lost a seat in the Senate and have a House majority by four votes, that the lesson there is to put Paul Gosar and Lauren Boebert on plumb and powerful committee assignments. I mean, it, defi- it defies all logic. And I guess, I, de- I mean, are, are we witnessing, and I, I think I've been saying this for 10 years, but it really feels like it now, is this the implosion of the GOP as a functioning party? I mean, how can you look at what, what just happened and make the decision that was made today, hours ago?
4: Yeah. I mean, what you're seeing is people acting out of self-interest. I mean, if you are in a safe district, if your echo chamber is Fox News, it's your small donors, it's your you know deep red district that Marjorie Taylor Greene represents, uh, Paul Gosar represents, also the, the far right members of your caucus that, Paul, that, that Kevin McCarthy desperately needs. I mean, these are the people you are focused on. And the idea of what, a, what an autopsy committee is going to decide and what the Republican Party needs to win over swing voters, they don't give a damn about that. I mean, that is not something that they think about in the day-to-day. It's all very short-term, narrow, and self-perpetuating thinking.
0: I wonder if there's also, like, a more cynical thing at play, which is that— There's a belief that what happens in Washington stays in Washington. I mean, I wonder if you think this is true, that you can launch any number of flawed, fraudulent investigations into various Democratic members of the administration. You can impeach however many cabinet secretaries you want and launch, you know, a a subcommittee on, you know, COVID being imported from Mars or whatever. And that you're not going to pay a price for that in a presidential election year. I mean, do you think they believe that they can get away with absolute chicanery, nonsense and disinformation inside the halls of Congress and not actually pay the price nationally when it comes to a big election year?
4: Clearly, because I think, one, I mean, they are most, for the most part, all getting reelected and and McCarthy is getting his speakership. I mean, in, in a way, the decisions they've made, I mean, if you sort of put it all together, is, is an example of the GOP, certainly in the House, deciding to lead with the clown shows. I mean, every single person who has been on the fringe of the last couple of years has been rewarded, has been empowered. We're going to see so much more of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar and Jim Jordan and the whole crew. And, yeah, again, they are dealing with self-perpetuation in very, very narrow-focused districts that involves, you know, really their own political interests and Fox's political interests. And, again, national ele- elections and autopsies and things like that are not the kinds of things they're thinking about, nor are they thinking about what's good for the country.
0: I mean, do you, do you think we're going to default on our credit, like, when it comes down to the def- debt-, debt ceiling <laughs> fight? I mean, how nihilistic how, how nihilistic? Do you think the Republican Party is willing to be at this stage in the game?
4: We are going to find out. I mean, I hate to be you know, ominous about it, but but look, I mean, I think obviously Democrats were, were thrilled pretty much with the election, the midterm election results. They knew, especially if they kept the Senate, which they did, uh, the amount of damage that the House could do was, was somewhat contained by the fact that, you know, it was a very small margin ultimately, but also that the White House and the Senate were in Democratic hands. But the debt ceiling is the big kind of glaring um, exception to this. This is a massive, massive threat if they decide they don't want to, you know, they don't want to play ball on this and they're just going to sort of obstruct this. um, There could be catastrophic consequences that, frankly, I don't think Marjorie Taylor Greene is thinking about in terms of what her district will abide. I think, you know, again, the reward structure there is very, very different from what sane consumers and practitioners of of politics uh, will think about on the day to day. So, yeah, that to me is, is a harrowing thought.
0: I mean I don't think it's a coincidence that a grifter like George Santos went from basically uh, a Ponzi scheme to running for office in the Republican party. There may be and a winning. link there. <laughs> and winning. Mark Leibovich, staff yeah. writer for the Atlantic, friend of this program. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks Alex. Just ahead. Will the recent discovery of classified documents at President Biden's Delaware home, will that impact Merrick Garland's thinking when it comes to indicting former President Trump? A former DOJ prosecutor who recently spoke to about 20 of Garland's former colleagues and acquaintances, he joins me to discuss. That's next.
4: Hey, everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights.
1: Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in Purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy.
4: That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow.
2: There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia. Part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah, Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.
0: I'm going to show you a local Illinois TV news segment that the HGTV star Matt Blashaw did back in October about winter coming. And I want you to try and guess which industry lobby he was quietly getting checks from.
4: When I think of winter, I think of being inside. I think of getting uh, cooking with the family, like on the range behind me, being by a roaring fire, and with propane, that is all possible. If you're running into maintenance issues on that furnace, consider using these great federal tax credits and upgrading to a propane powered furnace. What I don't like about wood burning fireplaces, I love the smell, I love the crackle. I don't love going out in the middle of winter to go get the wood and then having to clean out the firebox and the floor at the end of winter as well. So for me, propane is the way to go with my fireplace.
0: It is not subtle. HGTV's Matt Blashaw is getting paid to push propane. And he is not alone. The New York Times reports that an organization called the Propane Education and Research Council, or PERC, has spent millions of dollars on provocative anti-electrification messaging for TV, print, and social media using influencers like Mr. Blashaw. That is despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of the scientific community agrees that the burning of fossil fuels is dangerously heating our planet, and the fact that propane and gas, as appliances, can emit dangerous levels of toxic chemicals, and the fact that electricity is just cheaper to begin with. But that's the point. They're spending money to get you to spend your money on a product that, in many cases, just doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. This year. In 2023, Perk plans to spend another $13 million on its anti-electrification campaign. So the next time you settle into the couch and flip on a home makeover show to unwind, be alert. The propane lobby may be the real star of that show. But it is not just propane. And it is not just TV. Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine signed a bill earlier this year so that individuals who want to build a chicken coop in their backyard can do so legally on a smaller scale, which sounds Totally fine for the backyard chicken coop enthusiasts. But buried in that chicken bill was the very not-chicken-related amendment that legally redefined natural gas as a source of green energy. Natural gas, which is primarily methane, is not green energy. It is a fossil fuel. And according to the EPA, it is more than 25 times as potent as carbon dioxide at trapping heat in the atmosphere. This chicken bill also changed state regulations to make it easier to frack on state-owned land. It changed regulatory language from saying that state agencies may lease state land for the production of oil and natural gas to saying they shall lease that land. So now agencies have to lease land for fracking. But here's the thing. Like HGTV hosts praising propane, this chicken bill was not fully homegrown. Today, The Washington Post revealed that two dark money groups with ties to the gas industry, they got the bill passed. The Empowerment Alliance spent more than a million dollars supporting Ohio Republicans in the 2022 election. This bill passed with only Republican support. The American Legislative Exchange Council, known as ALEC, it circulated a model bill for lawmakers to copy and paste and distributed talking points for the bill's proponents. And it worked. The law of the land in the state of Ohio now defies science and logic and instead reflects the desires of the natural gas industry. And that whole scheme is coming to a state near you. In a newsletter the Empowerment Alliance sent out on Friday, they wrote states like Texas, Louisiana, Pennsylvania and West Virginia are top energy producing states. They should follow suit on TV and on social media in state legislatures. Fossil fuel lobbies are running an all-out campaign to try to trick you into thinking they aren't bad for the environment. Don't fall for it.
4: Sir, why did not you tell us...
0: Absolutely nothing. That is what reporters got out of President Biden today after inundating him, really yelling at him with questions about classified documents found in his possession while President Biden was holding a meeting with the Dutch prime minister. Hours later, the White House press secretary said the administration is cooperating with the Justice Department, but that the ongoing investigation is preventing the White House from further comment. Meanwhile, new details are emerging from uh, about the DOJ's involvement in that very investigation. The Wall Street Journal reports tonight that the Justice Department considered but rejected role in Biden document search. According to the paper, the DOJ considered having FBI agents monitor Biden's lawyers in their search for classified documents at his home's. But ultimately, the DOJ decided against it to avoid complicating later stages of the investigation. The DOJ also opted out because, unlike Trump's legal team, Biden's attorneys were cooperating and, in fact, were the ones to bring the issue to the DOJ's attention in the very first place. This decision, like so many other ones, shows the unprecedented circumstances Attorney General Merrick Garland faces while also navigating parallel investigations into President, former President Trump's handling of classified documents and, of course, The sprawling investigation into his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Here's how Ankush Kardori frames it in his new political profile, Politico profile on Garland. An analysis by the Congressional Research Service described him as a meticulous and cautious jurist, writing with precision and an eye toward ensuring that the court does not overreach in any particular case. But he notes While Judge Garland, then Judge Garland, would often turn to established case law and legal precedent, There is no comparable body of guidance for how prosecutors should build a criminal case or even when they should charge one, and even less so when the potential criminal is a former president. This dilemma is unlike virtually any other in Garland's career because, in a meaningful sense, he finds himself having to make the rules rather than simply follow or interpret them. Joining us now is Ankush Kardori, former federal prosecutor and contributing writer for Politico magazine. Thanks for being here tonight.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So one of the things that I found most surprising in this very exhaustive, um, very well-reported piece on uh, the attorney general is just how much of a political—I won't say actor um, or maybe savant, but how sensitive he is to the political trade winds. Can you talk a little bit more about that? because I think the public understands him, at least at this point, to be so decidedly apolitical.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that was really one of the things I wanted to get through in the piece. Because there is this notion that this is the judge, you know, he's devoid of politics, he's outside of the political realm. But he's had a career that has been intertwined with the fortunes of the Democratic Party. It's no accident that a lawyer just becomes the attorney general, not even the most brilliant, gracious, kind person. He's has friends in politics. He's been in and out of political politics. Uh, um, legal circles for decades. And he has people who are deeply in, enmeshed in like, the Clinton uh, world and the like. Um, so there's that, which is about his biography and his history. Mm-hmm. And I think secondarily, and this is sort of the, the, the latter half of the piece, is really well, what how are politics or political considerations sort of hanging over his tenure at the Justice Department, and how might they be influencing him for better
0: or worse? Yeah. I mean, when you, given that, When we have all the news, the swirl around Biden and his possession, willful or not, of certain classified documents, lesser in number, the situation is, again, different, but nonetheless, finding classified documents at various residences or the office that he was using, I mean— for Garland, it is already such a complicated landscape. Do you feel like he is trying to really compensate for the fact that there is seemingly a looming criminal indictment over President Trump by being particularly aggressive on the Biden investigation?
2: You know, I don't know if there truly is a looming criminal indictment. Obviously, um, we're in terrain where that's a very real possibility.
0: Mm-hmm. Or at least the possibility of it, I guess.
2: Right. I mean, there's a special counsel was named last November, yeah. given a, 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 a mandate on two significant areas. Um, so I think that's one way of interpreting it. I, I think another way of just sort of thinking about it is, look, last August, he took an extraordinary step searching a former president's yeah. home uh, with the FBI. And then lo and behold, a few months later, he gets told by Joe Biden's lawyers. Oh, we have some documents of our own. Yeah. I don't know this man particularly well. I did my best to channel him. If it were me, and I expect on some level him, he must have been irate. Because here he is going out on a limb, doing something truly unprecedented, generating all this political controversy and heat. And now it's just been sort of mucked around with as a result of Biden's conduct.
0: Um, when we talk about the two special counsels he's appointed, I mean, Jack Smith is a special counsel who's overseeing the investigation into Mar-a-Lago and January 6th, President Trump's role in both. Uh, Robert Hur is the person that uh, Garland has chosen to look into the Biden documents situation. He is a decidedly more political actor. Do you think that that reflects... Uh, he's a partisan in, in a way that Jack Smith is not, It just in terms of political donations and his role in the Trump administration. Do you think that that reflects anything in terms of Garland's, I won't say, sense of uh, punitive streak in Garland, but you think that he might have been actually frustrated by the disclosures from the Biden administration.
2: I mean, I imagine he was. And and to to your point about, you know, this person having a a more significant political profile than Jack Smith, I mean, he was a political pointy in the Trump administration. Um, I don't think it's an accident. Um, I do think there's some effort to kind of make sure that if this investigation is going to happen, he can do his best at sort of placating people who may be skeptical of it, including by putting uh, a Trump appointee in charge of it. I mean, obviously, the person who had it before, John Lausch, was also a Trump appointee, U.S. attorney in Chicago who's since left. Um, And honestly, I think that's one of those. Um, decisions that does reflect his sensitivity to public
0: perception
2: and the politics swirling around him, despite what many people have said.
0: You make this really key point that early on in his career, he's very concerned about the institutional integrity of the Justice Department. There was the media circus around O.J. Simpson, and then he is tasked with managing the response to the Oklahoma City bombing. And this is kind of a story of how to, you know, not resurrect, but, but... represent to the American public the efficacy and the importance and the institutional integrity of the DOJ. It feels like we're in another moment in terms of Garland and the DOJ and what Where we're going from here, right? We have this attack on the our sort of the institutions of democracy. There's real, at least in some corners, skepticism about institutional integrity at the FBI and the DOJ. Here's a chance to restore that integrity. Do you think Garland is looking at it in such a high-stakes manner? It doesn't feel like he wanted to have to take on Trump at the outset of his career as AG, and now he finds himself in almost an impossible position.
2: The people who know him well will tell you that he understands all this. He gets the political stakes. I have a hard time squaring that with the actual record. Um, Because as you say, you know, something hugely significant happened on January 6th. Joe Biden took office a couple weeks later. A couple months later is when Merrick Garland takes office. My own view as an observer is that at that point in time, there should have been a very aggressive and robust investigation into the Trump White House and the Trump campaign concerning January 6th and the months-long campaign leading up to it and also the financial sort of shenanigans, but particularly January 6th. And your analogy is a good one, but you know, at a terrorist attack, there's gonna be no question that there's gonna be an aggressive law enforcement response. This was different. I think a a comparable sort of level of responsiveness and aggressiveness should have been brought to bear, Mm -hmm. not to be overzealous or, or irresponsible or anything like that, but that didn't happen. And I think 2021 and a significant part of 2022 appear—and we don't know exactly everything that went on in the Justice Department—appear to have gone by with them kind of hoping that they wouldn't have to deal with Trump head-on.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks, January 6th committee. They really—those televised hearings changed the landscape as far as how we think of January 6th. Former federal prosecutor, and kadori Kush Thank you so much. Great reporting. Thank you. We'll be right back. That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow.